This is 365 Honest Questions About the Bible. I'm your long-suffering host, Dante Stack, and today we're on question 90. Would Jesus have been a good soldier? What would Jesus do if he were a soldier? Simple question. Before we get into the marrow of this question, however, I do have to cover some personal business. In just a few days... After the release of this episode, I will be moving along with my wife and faithful dog companion to Moscow, Russia. I'm going to be an English teacher, kind of career change up here. And as I'm moving into that transition, when I'm not working and figuring out the Moscow metro system, I feel like I need to commit my free time to learning the language. So currently, my free time goes into doing this podcast. For the foreseeable future, I think I need to change that up. I need to be concentrating on being able to speak to my neighbors, which will be people that speak Russian. I do not speak Russian, so I need to speak Russian. I need to learn Russian. That needs to be my top priority. So, I think I'll be stopping this podcast. Now, I've made similar claims before, and then after a few months, I come crawling back because doing this podcast for me is as I've said many times before, a way of worship and a way to keep me disciplined in staying in the Word, staying in the Bible, and staying in communion and conversation with God. So I may leave you and then in a month or three or four or a year later be like, I got to get this back in my life. So that's kind of where I stand, or actually I'm sitting right now. I will, of course, keep this podcast up on iTunes, up on DanteStack.com, so of course you'll still have access to all the episodes. I just won't be producing any new content in the near future. So, hooray! Or sad, or whatever. Emotion! Emotion! Okay, so today's... Episode question is very straightforward. Would Jesus have been a good soldier? And really we're asking the question, in all of life's experiences, in all the various challenges that different people's lives have offered, would Jesus always be a pacifist, right? We read the gospel accounts and we see Jesus is pretty much a pacifist from beginning to end. Yeah, he runs in the temple with the whip that he makes, But there's no account of, and then he found the one guy that was selling pig's feet, and he gave him 39 lashes. There's no punitive action Jesus takes towards another. And certainly in his speeches, in his sermons, he preaches pacifism. He he preaches more than pacifism. He preaches to love your enemy, to turn the other cheek. But does that always work? Jesus, as a human being, was born into a particular socio- economic system at a particular time in history. So can we simply say, look, Jesus never killed anyone. The rest of us shouldn't kill anyone. Or do we go and say, look, Jesus lived in this specific situation, but we see there is such a thing as just war because the nation of Israel, led by God, slaughtered a whole bunch of people and war is just at certain times. It is a good and most benevolent thing to do under certain circumstances to kill your enemy, right? If someone breaks into your house and is going to rape your wife and dog, it seems the better thing to physically confront them than to simply turn the other cheek and let your loved ones be violated. So I want to try to stay disciplined today and look specifically at 
the closest passage we could get to Jesus ascribing violence. Um, but before we do that, I do want to look at a couple New Testament passages that talk about this issue, essentially. So first we see 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 23 through 25. This is Peter talking about Jesus. Peter says, When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Paul says a similar thing in Romans chapter 12, verses 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Again, we read this, and it's like, okay, if I have a grudge against someone, if I have an enemy that always mows their lawn at the same time of day that I do, and we just mow the lawn staring at each other, grimacing at one another from across the street. Okay, I understand what you're saying there, Paul. I shouldn't grimace at him. I should take him a glass of lemonade because it's hot outside and we're mowing the lawn. But if I'm in a trench in World War I, I can't see my enemy. I certainly can't run over and give them water because they're going to shoot me as I run across no man's land. But nevertheless, from both of these passages, we get the idea from both Paul and Peter that the implementation of justice is Yahweh's, is God the Father's. It's not our duty to implement justice on earth, meaning it is not our job to punish the wrongdoer. Now, of course, you can push back on that and say, whoa, 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 whoa. They're talking about individuals here. They're not talking about how states and governments are supposed to run. In fact, there's other passages that say that states are put in place by God. And so corporal punishment and a means to hold people to justice is a faculty and a right position for government to do. Yada, yada, yada. It's not really what I'm interested in today. So I'll sweep that question aside. Moving on. Okay. Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 5, this is where we get Jesus' classic love your enemies speech. So this discussion, of course, has to at least include this reference. Jesus said, chapter 5 of Matthew, verses 43 through 48, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. You know, he goes on to say, if someone slaps you, turn the other cheek so they can slap the other cheek. If someone steals something from you, give them your cloak as well. Jesus is instilling this. Go above and beyond in your attitude, in your love towards even those who don't deserve it. Okay, so that's the backdrop there. All this pacifism, all this love. But then, right when things get hairy for Jesus, this happens. This is right after, or maybe during, uh, the Last Supper, right before Jesus goes to pray on the Mount of Olives, before Judas kisses him and he's imprisoned to be crucified. Jesus says this, 
Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 35. And he said to them, that's Jesus, When I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? They said, Nothing. He said to them, this is his disciples he's speaking to, But now let the one who has a money bag take it, and likewise a knapsack. And let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, Look, Lord, here are two swords. And Jesus said to them, It is enough. So just moments before Jesus is captured, he tells his disciples, Look, I told you before, when you went out into the world, you didn't need anything. Now I'm saying, even if you have nothing, sell your clothes off your back to have a sword. To which the disciples are like, uh, well, we have these two swords. There's 12 of us here, or I guess 11. There's 11 of us here, and we have two swords. And Jesus then says, okay, good. That's enough. Good, good. So, what's going on here? Is Jesus advocating a change in policy? Is Jesus suddenly saying, all right, once I'm not around, you're going to need the sword. You're going to need to fight back. You're going to need to defend yourself. What, what's the point of this little speech? As I see it, I think there's four potential explanations as to what's going on here. One, Jesus is saying, hey, yes, defending yourself is good. It's a scary world out there. I'm not going to be around to protect you and to vanish suddenly in the midst of an angry mob. So, buy a sword. Defend yourself, defend your family. It's important. The second explanation comes from Matthew Henry, the biblical commentator. I'll just summarize his thoughts by saying he essentially says this is spiritual talk Jesus is talking about. And then when the disciples are like, oh, well, we have these two swords, Jesus is like, oh, well, yes, that that's enough. Kind of like, be quiet, child. I'm talking about something not physical. And then Matthew Henry equates Jesus is talking about getting a sword with the sword of the spirit. In other words, Jesus is, is speaking on a spiritual plane entirely here. He's not talking about, you know, cutting up your enemy. He's not talking about sticking a dagger uh, in some Roman soldier's throat. This is simply a spiritual conversation using physical things as an analogy. The last explanation is, I guess the one that I buy into, is that Jesus is saying these words as a fulfillment of Scripture, right? So he says in the passage himself, and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled in me. Then Jesus quotes from Isaiah. He says, and he was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus continues to say then, for what is written about me has its fulfillment. <laughs> okay, wait, real quick. I messed up. I said this was the explanation that I bought into. This is explanation three. I actually buy into explanation four the most. Um, so my bad. I was looking at my notes and thought I was on the last point, but I'm not. I'm on fulfillment point. So anyway, here's fulfillment point, continuing on. <laughs> All right, so Jesus quotes from Isaiah 53, essentially saying he was numbered among the transgressors. Let me first read Isaiah 53 verses 4 through 12, because it's all very interesting and very relevant. It begins... Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. 
All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked, and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death, and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many, and makes intercession for the transgressors. Okay, wow! This Isaiah passage, obviously, the suffering servant, Jesus is well aware of it. He's quoting it as he's about to be taken captive and killed. And Jesus says, I am the fulfillment of this. And he directly quotes from verse 12 that he is numbered among the transgressors. Well, Jacques Ellul says that Jesus specifically quotes this and specifically asks about swords because he needs the disciples to have several swords apparently two is sufficient, so that he is considered by the authorities to be among a band of brigands, to be among transgressors, uh, troublemakers, and the swords prove that. So Jesus, being the perfectionist and trying to make sure he fulfills every bit of the prophecy, is making sure that his disciples have enough swords so that he can be considered numbered among transgressors, enemies of the state. And in this, then, there is fulfillment. Certainly, I think there's validity to this argument, since Jesus himself is quoting from Isaiah 53. I do favor, though, the last explanation of this passage, is that Jesus is anticipating his last miracle before his death. Right? We know the story. We know that his disciples are essentially about to scatter. Peter is about to deny Jesus three times, and Jesus himself is about to be tortured and killed. It's in this context, then, that this happens. A couple verses later in Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 47, while he was still speaking, that's Jesus, there came a crowd, and the man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus heals a man's ear, replaces it right in front of his disciples. Tradition says the disciple that cuts off the man's ear is Simon Peter himself. Jesus says a bit more in the parallel passage found in Matthew. Matthew 26, starting in verse 51, tells the story this way. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? 
Okay, so Jesus heals this guy's ear and yells at his disciples. Those who live by the sword die by the sword. And dumb disciples, don't you realize? I could have all these angels come and protect me if I wanted to. But this has to happen. Prophecy has to be fulfilled in this way. I am the suffering servant. This this must be done. So I think putting it in the minds that Peter and fellow disciples need their swords or should have their swords on hand probably heightens Peter, gets him into a frenzy. And now Peter's thinking when all these armored authority figures show up, he's like, I'm, I, I gotta defend Christ. That's what he was just implying earlier. So he gets out his sword, hacks off the ear. And this gives Jesus an opportunity to show both to his disciples and to us 2,000 years later that this was part of God's plan. This this wasn't just happenstance. Uh, the chief priest didn't catch Jesus off guard. You just didn't trick Jesus. And he's saying, look, it's not about swords. That's That's not what I'm trying to accomplish here. I'm trying to accomplish something more. And we learn through action, not by mere words. So Jesus has an opportunity to once again prove to his disciples, I am a healer, and I don't need to use a sword. Okay, so that's the one instance, this go by a sword, that's the one passage where we see Jesus maybe implying the use of fighting as justice, as good, but then it's immediately taken back because the very swords that Jesus was just asking about is reprimanded, essentially, those who live by the sword die by the sword, and then he heals the damage the sword did. So, again, the question, if Jesus lived in a different century, in a different climate, if he was recruited as a soldier, would he have been a good soldier? Well, recently the movie Hacksaw Ridge came out, starring Andrew Garfield playing the role of the real-life Desmond Doss, who was a pacifist that fought in World War II, I say fought, but really he refused to carry a gun, any sort of weapon, into battle. Um, but he was still awarded the Medal of Honor because he ends up saving all of his comrades' lives, dragging their bloodied bodies off of uh, the field. He's a hero, true hero. It's an amazing story. It's a good movie. Maybe Jesus would have, in any circumstance, gone into battle and acted like Desmond Doss. Maybe he absolutely was an idealistic pacifist through and through. But then there's so many stories in history where people are stuck in catch-22 situations. Uh, the Poles, the Polish people in World War II, right? They're caught in the crossfires between Nazi Germany and Soviet Russia, who are fighting each other, and Poland's right in between those two nations. But both nations also want Poland for themselves. And if you're caught fighting for one, then you're considered a partisan by the other. And if you're not fighting for either, then you're also killed for not taking up arms for your motherland. It's an extremely difficult situation. And Poland, by the way, suffered more casualties as a percentage of their populace than any other nation on Earth during World War II. It was something like 20% of all Poles died during World War II. What would Jesus do if he was Polish in World War II? Well, he's Jewish, so he's probably thrown into concentration camp, but that aside, how do you act in those environments? It's fine to, even Hacksaw Ridge, you know, Desmond Doss, it's fine to imagine Jesus would act like him, but again, America, we haven't felt existential military crises like other nations and other peoples have. What, maybe the only one was really the Revolutionary War. Since then, we haven't been fighting wars as a nation for the very will to live. But what if you're 
a small Hungarian city in the 12th century when the Mongol army is coming sweeping in. And you've heard rumors of what the Mongol army is a can accomplish and you know if you surrender to the mongol army then they're going to put you at the front lines essentially as human shields as they go and plunder the next city 10 kilometers away so if you surrender you're going to die and you're going to be used as fodder to kill your hungarian comrades in the next city over and if you fight of course they're going to kill every last one of you you're in a lose-lose situation Everyone dies no matter what. But maybe somehow, miraculously, you're thinking if we fight, maybe we can defend our town. Maybe then our wives aren't raped. Our city isn't plundered entirely. It's a no-win situation. It's similar to, uh, what is it, the two towers of the Lord of the Rings when it's like, there's a bunch of orcs coming. Being a pacifist in this situation just doesn't work. We just all get killed. Some of us tortured and many of us raped. So it adds this emotional spiritual scarring to our destruction aside from just being killed i think it's one thing to be killed but for your loved ones to be raped and taken into bondage that adds a psychic emotional level of carnage and anguish that i think i i, I don't know i can't wrap my mind around it but it's one thing to kill us it's another thing to rape us what would jesus do in that situation he was never in that situation as a human being he just wasn't i don't have an answer I don't think the Bible gives us an answer. What it does do, or what Jesus does do, is he says this. John chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. I will not leave you as orphans. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. That, at least to me, in part, Jesus is exploring and telling us why there is a necessity to have the Holy Spirit. Why we still need God's presence in the form of the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus didn't live every life. I just don't like that phrase, what would Jesus do? Because I don't know. I don't know what Jesus would do. Would Jesus get a tattoo? Maybe. I don't know. That's, that's a really confusing question. And when I had that armband as an eight-year-old, it really confused the snot out of me. So I think there's much more comfort as a Christian to simply ask these questions, not what would Jesus do, but through asking, petitioning the Holy Spirit, what's the right thing to do in this situation? Finding peace there. All right, guys, it's, it's been a joy. This is Dante Stack signing out. Peace be the journey. <laughs>